0: Um, Open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 2, Psalm 2, I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning, Psalm 2, the word of God reads, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Descends the, the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Well, I certainly hope you all had a happy Thanksgiving. I certainly hope you all had a happy Thanksgiving. Yes, amen. <laughs> amen. You can speak when you're asked to speak, but that's only when you speak here. <laughs> a hearty amen here and there is fine. Amen. amen. Well, now it's December, and. Uh, We'll begin to say to one another, Merry Christmas. And this Advent season, this Christmas season, um, we're going to be looking at some selected psalms. Um, I'm sure that when people think of Jesus at Christmas, they think of Jesus, weak and helpless, baby Jesus, sitting in a manger. And certainly, people who don't often think about Jesus think more of him Uh, around Christmas, and then in four months, at Easter time, they'll see him as dying and resurrected. And no doubt, he came, he was born, he lived, he died, and he raised again. But I don't believe most people, even some in the church, uh, that they don't truly realize the significance of this same Jesus who victoriously ascended victoriously ascended. Who now rules and reigns all nations and will come again in glory and in judgment over those nations. He rules now. Rich reveals for us that the first and second comings of Christ are polar opposite comings. In his first coming, it was a coming of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. Did you get that? The first coming was of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. The second coming of Jesus Christ will be a coming of his wrath and indignation. You want to know the true purpose, The I should say the ultimate purpose of Christmas? It's defined here in Psalm 2. The focus of Psalm 2 is much different than baby Jesus in a manger who doesn't speak. Today's focus is that although he did indeed come to drink the cup of God's wrath, the first time when he comes again, he will emit that wrath. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. In the criterion for classifying um, a psalm as messianic, is first, number one, uh, the fact that Jesus said the psalms spoke of him. Shortly before his ascension, Jesus reminded the disciples concerning. Um, some of the things that he had taught them, uh, bringing to their attention, bringing to their attention, this truth that, quote, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Luke 24, 36. Now, secondly, the second criterion is that specific Psalms are designated as... Messianic by way of inspiration of the New Testament writers. As a matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews applied verse 7 of Psalm 2 to Jesus on two occasions. Hebrews 1.5 and 5.5, 5, which reads, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 2 is referred to in Revelation 1.5, the ruler of the kings of the earth described there. Revelation 12.5, he will rule the nations. Revelation 2.27, he will rule them with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like earthen pots. Psalm 2 is classified as a royal psalm a royal psalm concerning a kingly anointing and coronation, obviously, of King David and those who would follow him, um, which prefigures a much greater king, a much greater Davidic king. This ultimately anticipates a greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ as promised in 2 Samuel 7, from which we read this morning, and as such, is a messianic psalm. We see it in verse 6 of Psalm 2. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, this is a psalm of David, penned by David. Although you're heading in your Bible, like Psalm 3, it says a psalm of David, Psalm 2 doesn't say a psalm of David, uh, but we know that David wrote this because of what we read in Acts 4. If you notice, Acts 4, verse 25. Through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Psalm of David. Messianic Psalm. Now, the book of Psalms, as we mentioned last week, uh, are divided into five smaller books. Five books that make up the Psalter. Uh, Last week, we were in the first Psalm of the fifth book. Today, we're in the second Psalm of the first book. One of five. Now, Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is one of a pair And Psalm 2, meaning that Psalm 2 is paired up with Psalm 1, serving together basically as an introduction to the rest of the psalms as a whole, which sets the tone for the rest of the book, and the tone is that of worship. It's the tone of worship. So these two psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, are considered a, a single a literary unit. They make up one. Now, we might be prone to think that Psalm 1, if it sets the tone, would begin perhaps with the attributes of God or his immutability, the fact that God does not change, or his holiness, or his eternality, bringing the readers to their knees in humble awe and adoration of this mighty sovereign God. That's what I would think. But Psalm 1 begins with a promise of happiness. A promise of blessing. Happiness for his image bearers. Who are the image bearers of God? Every human being. That doesn't mean every human being is going to heaven, because a lot of image bearers are going to go to hell. But all of humanity, men and women, are made in the image of God. The only creatures made in the image of God, and those creatures are the one the ones who seek continually to be happy. Did that baby say happy? <laughs> happy. Fallen, sinful mankind attempts to reach this sensation typically by way of seeking their own pleasure. They seek their own pleasure. And that, of course, is a never ending pursuit because you're always trying to fill the gap of unhappiness with happenstance that is positive happenings, positive happenings. Amen? <laughs> Seeking happiness. But true fulfillment, true happiness, whether fallen mankind realizes it or not, is ultimately and only found in submitting to to the one in whose image we bear. The creator of the universe. Now notice Psalm 2 ends as Psalm 1 begins, serving as an overall introduction. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 2 verse 12 Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In him. In him. Who is the word. Now, the middle psalms, when you get to those, describe great distress, depressing issues, right? Troubling circumstances. Where the psalm writer directs his own troubled soul, get this, back to God. Where do you direct your troubled soul, beloved? Back to God, amen? Do you preach the gospel to yourself every day? I hope so. Go to the gospel. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus every time you feel condemned. Every time you feel the wrath of God is hanging over your head, his mercies are new every morning. I'm in Christ who drank the cup of God's wrath. You've got to preach to yourself. Direct your soul back to God. That's what the psalmist does. And then by the time we get to the end of the psalms, we read things like this in Psalm 148. It's the experience of gladness and happiness and praise. Praising the Lord from the earth. Psalm 149. Sing to the Lord a new song in the assembly of the godly. Praising his name with dancing. Making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. As the Lord takes pleasure in his people adoring the humble with salvation so they sing for joy on their beds. The tambourine and the lyre. That's why we don't believe in only an organ for Reformed churches. Amen? Which is cool. I love nothing. I love more than the organ. But hey, I read in the Bible all kinds of instruments. Amen? So just in case. We thank George for playing the piano this morning. We'll try to get him some lessons as soon as we can. Amen? (laughs) Delightful, delightful. (laughs) Only God's people, only the people of God can sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. If indeed, if indeed, and only if they have kissed the extended nail pierced hand of the son in his first coming. For without which you will suffer the wrath described in this psalm. So this is a good news, bad news thing. That's what the gospel is. Bad news, good news. There's no good news without bad news. Once you understand the bad news, you can receive and understand the good news. Amen? The psalm is divided up in four easy parts outlined for you. In your bulletin, part one, verses one through three, we see man's rebellion. Verses four through six, we see God's rebuke. Verses 7 through 9, the son of God's retaliation, the anointed one, that's Jesus. In verses 10 through 12, a wise man's refuge. Notice man's rebellion, verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 1, this is about the conspiracy of humanity against its creator. What folly. A people hostile to the rule of the triune God, attempting and conspiring to revolt against his kingship. And how's that plot organized today? Practically speaking, through the agenda of education, no doubt. Through government, politics, entertainment, attempting to snuff out the truth of the Lord and his anointed. God the Father and His Son. That's a true trickle-down effect. Nations, leaders who set their agenda, planting evil philosophies. What does the Bible say? For the thoughts of man are evil what? Continually. So this is an attempt to dissuade people, to dissuade the nations from the proper acknowledgement of their creator. Whether they acknowledge him or not, he is their creator. A description of the world and its leaders in vehement opposition to almighty God. That's what we see. When you think of leaders in government coming to power in spite of all the rhetoric, you know, and how much they care for the people and how much they care about their problems, their freedoms, and all the other cliched buzzwords thrown around today. How many of them come and establish themselves in positions of leadership with a a conscience of leading people in submission to this king? the king of the universe, and his internally realized rule and reign, because Romans 1 tells us everyone knows that he's God, but they suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness. Why instead, verse 1, do they attempt to fight against them? Quite simply, because they hate him, as you and I once did. And but by the grace of God, you've been removed from that category into a category of no condemnation. Glory. <laughs> it's the age-old problem of sin right here. The age-old problem of sin says, "I will be like God, I will determine what's good, and I will determine what's evil." right? And we'll determine it for the people we lead as well. So to them, the reign of God, the command of God, the control of their creator over their lives, to them, that, that looks like enslavement. Did you feel enslaved before God bought you, brought you to faith in Jesus Christ, his son? Did you feel enslaved? When you heard about the righteousness of God, would you heard about the law of God? It sounds like enslavement. I don't want to be bound to that. They don't realize they're the most imprisoned people on the planet. Fettered and bound, wanting to burst the burdensome bonds and the cumbersome cords of restraint. That's what's being defined here. They despise his restraining grace. They scorn the conviction of conscience. They're trying to escape the feelings of guilt. Guilt is a mechanism placed there by God. All people have it. So a good majority of the world that are under psychiatric counsel are going mad, or or at least in, in deep states of depression, trying to escape a guilty conscience. You'll never get free. You can fool yourself. But there's only one who can set you free. See, sin is about self rule. Whether it's individual, political, governmental, those who lead will not and want not to follow his instruction, his protection, his direction as creator. They say we will not have it. That's the introductory point of this text, that's the picture. Being drawn. We're rebels because of our sin nature. We're rebels. Matthew 2 tells us that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he to be born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was what? Troubled. When you hear about God, you're troubled. As an unbeliever, you're troubled. It's troubling. Right? Because, as I said in Romans, in our overview, see, when you create God in your own image, you say, well, I say God is like this. That God doesn't convict you of your sin. That God that you create approves of your sin. This God says you're cursed because of your sin. You're condemned because of your sin. And you want to throw off that restraint. You want to throw off that cord. The the arrival of God's anointed, this true king, presented a threat to the throne of Herod. And a one true almighty God is a threat to the throne that we think we sit on. Along with the false religious systems of the world, and in this context of Matthew, the corrupt leadership of Israel at the time. Why do the nations rage? Why do they conspire together? Why do they set themselves against God and his Christ? Although we read their plot is in vain because they despise God and they hate his ways. It's clear. It's not because they don't believe. They don't believe in a trusting, saving sense, but they believe in the facts. He's there, so I have to erase him from my mind. And then this desire of peoples and nations for self-rulership is oftentimes, unfortunately, adopted by so-called churches. Okay? They claim to be a church, and they begin to dance to the, to the same beat of that drum, Psalm, Psalm 2. They're a lip-professing people who despise his counsel. They despise his word, and they want to break away from the bonds and cords of his truth, and they therefore attempt to silence his word. So just don't preach it, and you can silence it. So it makes its way into places that call themselves churches. In Matthew 2, again, verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in that region who were two in that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that had he had ascertained from the wise men. Why asks the nations in Psalm two, should we give him and his anointed our worship and our allegiance? No, we won't, so let's oppose him. That's the picture being drawn. Okay, we know we can only be saved by the divine work of God, the Holy Spirit, okay? But man at his base is created in the image of God, knows God is there and that he demands worship and they fight against it. And it results in a fight against Christianity. Christians, that's why the church are persecuted. That's why the world persecutes the church. You know, persecution and rejection of this one true God is never due to any man intelligently analyzing the message and saying that there's nothing there because it's all there. It's clear. He simply refuses to submit to this sovereign ruler, creator of all creation. And he thinks that there he'll find happiness he thinks he'll find contentment in self-worship because that's ultimately what it leads to. Not realizing that true freedom is led and directed by God equals true joy, fulfillment, and happiness. See, living within the prescribed ways of God who knows best in how we should live is true happiness. That's Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man. That can only be a redeemed man, no doubt. So attempting to throw off God's bonds and cords, Psalm 2, verse 2, provides only an illusion that we've entered freedom. But it's a true prison against this creator. So we now move from the scene of man's rebellion to God's rebuke. verses 4 through 6. So we we move from from earth, man's rebellious heart, up to heaven. That's what it is. It's a picture from, from earth to heaven. Notice. He who sits in the heavens, what? Laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Notice, God's not up there wringing his hands. Did you see that there? He's not biting his nails, he's not anxious, he's not intimidated. Oh, human beings, free will human beings, you know, although they're subject to their nature, have come of age, and they've entered into rebellion. No such thought. Amen? No such thought. Not like some teenager who thinks they'll rule and run the house down here. That's laughable. Teenagers who think you can run and rule your house. It's laughable. Repent. Notice also, he doesn't say, oh no, I can't, con- I can't control or, or intrude upon their free will. You know, I, I mean, they're conspiring together in mutiny. And their free will is beyond my Armenian reach. You read that there? Never. Never. No, instead... He laughs. He laughs. This is the only place in the Bible where God is said to laugh. And this is not a pleasant laughter. This isn't patting some rebellious little five-year-old who thinks he can take over the house on the head going, ha, 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 chuckle, chuckle, chuckle. No. This is not a tolerant, forbearing kind of laughter. It's a laugh of derision. Contempt. Scorn. The point is that the creature cries out, I will be royalty. I'm determined to reign. I will call my own shots. You see, this is our condition, friends, outside of faith and trust in Jesus Christ who came, lived, died, rose again, and is now ruling from the place of Psalm 2. That's you and that's me. But by the grace of God, We've been delivered from this. If you're in Christ, if you've kissed the Son, it is first coming. You know, sometimes Christians think that, you know, God laughing, that's kind of cruel. Who are you to say what's cruel? With God. Amen? Amen? Hardly so. The point is that only God is sovereign. You know, in amidst all the smoke-filled rooms and conferences where this picture of leaders conspiring together to come against this one true God is folly and utter foolishness. Ha! It's laughable. He's not pacing the floor. God doesn't, as a matter of fact, it doesn't even say he gets up off his throne. He just sits there and laughs. Amen? So the response here serves as a shock factor for us. This is shocking. It grabs you by the lapels and it shakes you. Don't fret. He who sits in heaven, when people try to rebel against him, he laughs. This king cannot be tamed and will not be tamed. He will not and cannot be manipulated by any creature. Right? Right? He's unmoved by the vain attempts of pitiful creatures who think that they can stand in defiance against him. That's the picture. Ha! See, they don't realize that at any moment he could throw them into cardiac arrest. Right? We're creatures of dust, beloved. Right? We're creatures of dust. We're subject to simple weather patterns. Like people on the East Coast, they got shut down by a little snowstorm, let alone a typhoon in the Philippines. We're subject to weather patterns because he's the pattern maker. He can end our life by simply closing his hand because he holds our breath in his hand. He closes it, it's over. And you're doomed unless you've kissed the sun in his first coming. See, rebellious sinners are foolish enough to think or even to say, I'm immortal. One pastor friend of mine says, if you think you're all that, go home and say to God, I dare you to take away all that I have. I dare you. Yeah, what fool would do that, Right? So now God's laughing and scoffing at them turns to action now against them. Okay? He's, God is not concerned about how well he's doing in the most recent polls in the universities and on the news networks and all that. He, is, he could care less. Amen? But boy, do we ever. Do we ever. God speaks. Okay. They said... Let's snap off the bond and the cords of God and his anointed. Verse 5, then he'll speak to them in his wrath, terrifying them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Zion was the place where the kingship of David and his line was established. But he's not speaking in this psalm of a mere human historic line of David. It's much greater than that. We see this, do we not? It's clear. He speaks of the grand descendant of David, namely the Messiah who rules. My king will rule my world, God says. My king will rule my creation. The anointed one, spoken of in verse 2. He will be brought to stand against them as the possessor, possessor of nations to the end of the earth. To the ends of that earth. Amen? So how does he, or how will God rebuke these people? How is his rebuke expressed towards these defiant nations that are pictured here? Well, quite simply, Verses 7 through 9. By way of his son's retaliation. His son's retaliation. Verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Why such a hard message in text at Christmas time? So that you remember what you've been delivered from and that you know what's in store if you haven't been delivered by this son. That's why. So speaking now of of the decree of kingship, he's speaking of the decree that Yahweh spoke to his anointed. A decree. A decision in eternity past that in all things he would be preeminent. Preeminent over creation. This is an eternally established decision, beloved. Beloved. Okay now this is not, okay? Mark this. This is not the an eternal begetting of Jesus the third person of the trinity, okay? This is not the beginning of the of the second person uh the second person of the trinity. The picture being drawn here is is one who's been hiding kind of like think of a picture of a baby in a womb. You know the baby's coming, right? But let's say we lived 100 years ago. You you don't know if it's a boy or a girl. Okay, you're anticipating and waiting. You don't know what color the baby's hair will be or what color the baby's eyes will be. And you're waiting and you're anticipating and you don't know until the baby's delivered. Okay? David was anointed king long before he took the throne. Consequently, this verse is not referring to Jesus the begotten son's birth, this is referring to Jesus, the begotten Son, and his resurrection. Look at what Paul writes when he addresses antioch in Antioch acts thirteen and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he had fulfilled us, this he has fulfilled to us, their children by raising Jesus as also It is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you, whose kingdom conquers all others, and will bring about universal peace in the midst of turmoil among, what? Nations. So Paul links Psalm 2, not with Christ's incarnation, but with his resurrection. Do we see this? Because Psalm 2 is not about the first coming of Messiah, it's about the second coming of Messiah. In judgment. The son by way of resurrection. Okay, now, if you're taking notes, this is important. Whether you're writing them down or not, take them in your mind. This is one of three ways in which he is the begotten son. This is one of three ways. Number one, Jesus is the eternal son of the eternal father. Okay, that's number one. He's the second person of the Trinity. This is why Jesus prayed in John 17 Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world, what? Existed. Secondly, he's God's son by way of incarnation. Son of Mary, the God-man. God said from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So... He's the eternal son of the eternal father. He's the incarnate son of God, the God-man. And thirdly, he's the raised, ascended, exalted, Davidic son who rules and reigns now and forevermore. That's what we're talking about in this text. Amen? Notice verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. Father speaking to the Son, the Son reciting the Father, and the ends of the earth your possession. Now you're going to ask this question in your mind, right? Well, doesn't he already possess them? Weren't they already his? I mean, after all, I read John 1, all things were made through him, all things were made by him and for him, right? By by, by virtue of his eternal sonship, he owns creation. Absolutely. No doubt. The reference, however, here has to do with the incarnate son who came, lived, died, raised, and ascended victoriously and inherited it as the resurrected, glorified God-man. That's the picture. He's been exalted. And what he did not have is the God-man he inherited. You see, friends... That's the reason Jesus' temptation was true temptation. When he was in the wilderness, what'd Satan say? Bow down to me, and in a moment of time, in an instant, showed him all the kingdoms of the earth. He said, bow down to me, and all this will be yours, Luke 4, because it's been delivered up to me. Did Jesus refute that? No. No. No making it a real temptation. So to think that Jesus wasn't tempted with evil is to be gravely mistaken. Anything contrary to or anything that violates the commanded will of God is evil. The triune God, second person of the Godhead, wasn't tempted. The incarnate Son, here, who is promised, you will receive the nation's, By way of the cross, not at the feet of Satan. That's why it was an evil temptation. Amen? By his death, he saves people from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation. By his resurrection and exaltation, he is judge of those very nations. This is what he's inherited the decree that went out long long ago do you know him have you kissed the son have you it, let me tell you something what a kiss means this is more than just a smooch on the cheek this is deep profound affection understanding his deep defa- profound affection for sinners like you and me repenting and believing On him, trusting him. And the father says, you, my beloved, begotten son, have paid the price. These nations are your inheritance. You've conquered sin. You've conquered death and temptation. And that's why Jesus can identify and understand the temptations you go through. Because he, in every way, was tempted as we are yet without sin. It's yours, my son. And Revelation tells us that as a result, Satan has been bound from deceiving what? The nations. Because of this conquering king. Does that mean Satan doesn't have influence? Of course he has influence, but he doesn't deceive the nations like he did. He's been bound from that. Because this king conquered. Conquered. As the son of Adam, the second Adam, as the son of Abraham, as the son of David has inherited the nations. That's why Jesus says in Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen: all power and authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. It's mine. Go therefore, and what? Make disciples of all nations. Those that he calls out from the nations, make disciples of them. Glory, Amen. And since they're his, the nations are his, he alone retains the right to pour out judgment on all the rest. What group are you in? Verse 9. It gets worse. (laughs) You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's a guarantee of wrath and judgment. That's a guarantee against all who reject God and His anointed. From those nations, Jesus calls His elect. We saw that in Psalm 107, amen? Remember Psalm 107 just last week? You remember, right? Amen? Good. Seven days ago. We saw last week how He does it. That no man or woman is saved from the judgment of circumstance, but only by way of God's loving kindness, his loving kindness. Because as a consequence of his victorious sonship, he sent the Holy Spirit. He sent the Spirit to bring his elect people from throughout these nations into a living, abiding union with God through his Son. This is what we have. Because this is whose we are. Now, that's a reality of history and will ultimately crush all who resist him, all who resist his way, and all who resist his will. Verse 9 informs us that he will establish his rule with violent conflict. Why? Verses 1 through 3. Because the nations rage. They'll have nothing to do with him. That's why. You know, when Jesus, in his ministry, he was citing Psalm 118. And when he was citing Psalm 118, he was speaking of himself as the stone that the builders rejected and that stone has become the chief cornerstone. And Jesus said this, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Those who mock God, those who want to create God in their own image, they say God's like this, they say God's like that. God changes with the time, think again. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Oh, man, he is. Which simply means anyone who persists in opposing Christ, they'll be pulverized in the end. That's what Jesus meant by what he said. John the Baptist, he came preaching. He said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's not pap and dribble, is it? That's not sappy love talk. Most of the Western church, I think, sees Jesus not as this mighty Christ, but as a milquetoast Jesus. Exodus 15.3 says, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. So it's this side, you see, of Jesus' royalty, the almighty Christ, that Psalm 2 is describing. You kiss the son, you rejoice in that son, for he is the only son. He's the only son. In in, in reference to Psalm 2, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he wrote this, Let us read it with the eye of faith, beholding as in a glass the final triumph of our Lord Jesus Christ over all his enemies. Notice we move to the final scene, verses 10 through 12, the wise man's refuge. Here's the good news. So the psalmist has taken us from the earth to behind the scenes in heaven and now we're back down on earth. And now therefore, verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the audience who's been given the visual portrait are now directly confronted. They're now addressed with a message here of warning to any and all who have not bowed before God's son. Because any lame cry of ignorance will go unheard. There'll be no excuse. Well, I didn't know. Oh, yes, you did. Yes, you did. This is a message of warning to act. This is a message of warning to be wise, to take heed, to do something about this eternal truth. And unless the Spirit of God is working that causes someone to do something about it, you are helpless. You're totally at the mercy of God. And that's what you want. That's what you want submit and serve this true king and you'll be truly happy. This is where happiness and joy is found. Now, if you're one who tends to think of Jesus more around Christmas time and you think of him as a baby lying in a manger, think again. Amen? He's not helpless. He has spoken. He didn't speak as a baby, but he has spoken and he rules from heaven. So repent of that thinking. See him as he is. Don't refuse these words of warning if, if this applies to you. If you're a Christian, rejoice in this. Rejoice and rejoice against some And some mo. Because you, if you're not in him, stand in imminent danger of furious and final destruction. And I plead with you to Repent. Because you will suffer his rage. You are doomed. That's the bad news. The bad news of the second coming of Christ. And it's described in in Revelation 19. You can just listen to this. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Fulfillment of Psalm 2. The good news is Christ's first coming. The good news is the verse that even unbelievers know. The good news is on placards and end zones and NFL games. But I'm going to read it, knowing it so well. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world the first time to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned. It goes on to say, whoever does not believe is already condemned, and they await this wrath. So, we still live in a day, of age, in a day and age of what? Grace a day that is still open for people to come and receive the forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So we continue to proclaim that truth. We continue to hearken the bad news. And if any Christian gets tired of hearing the bad news, you need to mature and grow up. Because you probably really don't understand the good news. Get tired of hearing people, Christians, don't like the whole counsel of God taught. You just want to be patted on the head. You're the covenant children of God. He loves you. Of course He loves you, but this is the price that was paid. This price. The wrath He's talking about is the wrath that Jesus came to bear upon Himself. He absorbed fully and completely the wrath of God in order to absolve the wrath of God for all who place their faith and trust in the Anointed One, the Son of God. No condemnation. Do you know him? Are you in him? He pardons and he releases all who come to him by faith. You're moved out of a category of Psalm 2 as a picture of people who rage against him into John 3, 16 and 17 who are no longer condemned. Because he drank the cup till it was dry. And now it's in him. And he'll emit that wrath when he comes against the nations that he rules and reigns over. Why? Because God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He rules. He's inherited rulership by coming out of heaven, taking on a human body, living the law of God out perfectly and then laying his life down as a sacrifice to bear the wrath of God as hell descended on Jesus on that cross, died, rose again, validating all that truth And he ascended to rule and reign like this. If you don't know him, if you've been pushing him off, to be undecided for Jesus is to be decided against Jesus. So repent, and I plead with you to come to Christ right where you sit. And that's a heart of repentance to him. You don't have to come up here to do that. You repent and say, I, 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 I repent. <laughs> Which means to change your thinking about who he is, and who you are. Place your faith and trust in him. That Jesus did it all. Unto him I owe. And you shall be saved. Christian, you're blessed. Why? Because by the grace of God, you've taken refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen? Amen. May the Lord richly bless you. This truth to your hearts, this day, this month, this year, next year, and as many as he gives you. Father God, we thank you for your glorious, gracious, loving son, that your love has been made manifest in a way that we could never have dreamed of. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Of your son who's ascended and rules and reigns forevermore, we thank you for faith to believe, to trust. Bless your people, Lord, your church this morning with this divine truth. May it resonate within us a a deeper heart of gratitude, thanksgiving, and encouragement to one another. And Lord, for any and all who are in here in this building today who are not saved by way of faith and trust in your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, bring them in today, we ask. As we approach the table that represents your son and his glorious work.